Inspiration Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. And once again this week, we're going to try to pair our looking at the prophecy of the fox and the little fox with this week's Torah portion, which is Teruma, our contribution, Exodus 25, 1 through 27, 19. And this is the passage I wanted to take a look at. Of course, you could have probably guessed this. Obviously, this is the theme of the creation gospel is going to be the seven branch menorah because it's such a great paradigm for so many things we read about in scripture. And so here's the instructions for the menorah, the lamp. He says, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand, its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And that's the thing you need to keep in the back of your mind about the Holy Spirit. Even though we are introduced to it as seven manifestations or seven characteristics in Isaiah. Nevertheless, it's one Holy Spirit that can manifest itself in many ways. So this description helps us get our minds wrapped around that. It's, you know, it emphasizes it's one piece. You start with one piece, even though it's going to have these etchings of the flowers and the bulbs and so forth, they are still one piece. They're not things that you add to it. Six branches shall go out from its sides, three branches of the lamp stand from its one side, and three branches of the lamp stand from its other side. Three cups shall be shaped like almond blossoms on the one branch, a bulb and a flower, and three cups shaped like almond blossoms on the other branch, a bulb and a flower. The same for six branches going out from the lamp stand. That sounds pretty mystical when you hear the detail here. And there is a lot of, you know, mystical commentary on this that, that, you know, uh, we don't deal with it too much because we've got our, we've got ourselves busy just looking at the simple meanings and the simple symbols of the, the seven branches. It says on the lampstand, four cups shaped like almond blossoms, its bulbs, its flowers, a bulb shall be under the first pair of branches coming out of it and a bulb under the second pair of branches coming out of it, and a bulb under the third pair of branches coming out of it. For the six branches coming out of the lampstand, their bulbs and their branches shall be of one piece with it. All of it shall be one piece of hammered work of pure gold. Then you shall make its lamps seven in number, and they shall mount its lamps so as to shed light on the space in front of it. In other words, there won't be any empty spaces once, once they're lit. The, the spaces will fill in. Its tongs and its trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made from a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. See that you make them by the pattern for them, which was shown to you on the mountain. And if you read some of the commentaries about how much gold they started out with as they continued refining, 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 finally, the, the purest gold ended up being the talent of pure gold. But just imagine how much gold they skimmed off. I want to say, I can't remember the numbers exactly, but it was at least 10 times the amount of the one talent of pure gold they ended up with, where they started the refining process. 
So this would have been gold of a very special quality. And, uh, you know, one little bit of trivia about the gold of the temple or the tabernacle is that it had a miraculous quality to it because gold is so soft. You know, metallurgists and engineers and so forth have looked at this and they look at the, the quality of the gold that's required and they say it's simply too soft for, for the manufactured use of it. It's just simply too soft uh, to be supporting the weight and so forth, especially in those desert conditions and you know heat in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And so they say it was truly miraculous. And this is one reason that King Nebuchadnezzar wanted that gold when uh, Babylon invaded Jerusalem because of this special quality of the gold that it was strong beyond its natural mineral quality. Uh, especially at this level of purity. So that's, that's pretty interesting. But I'm going to progress and come back to the seven branch lampstand. I, I want to skip all the way from here to the book of Revelation, but we're going to take a walk in the garden <laughs> before we get that far. So, so just hang in here with me so we can review for anybody who's just joining us for the first time, where we can go back and review the working text here are the footsteps of Messiah as we're talking about the prophecies of the Song of Songs. The one we're looking at right now is Song of Songs 2.15. It says, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. And like we said last week, we have to look at these prof prophecies very carefully. I mean, we have to really analyze any time there is repetition that seems odd, unnecessary, out of place, because had, had we read more carefully and decided to break down this passage we just looked at from Exodus 25 about the menorah, the repetition of some of the instructions here, we would have had to have said, now, why is there all this repetition where it looks like it's pretty clear over here, and yet it repeats itself? Well, let's go back and review our principle we learned last week. When you see a dual use of something in scripture, in this case, it's not only dual, it's plural. It says, you know, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes. So it doesn't say catch the fox, the little fox. We have two kinds of foxes. We have a big fox. We have a little fox. We have multiple foxes. So this suggests to us, because the, the word is very economical on the page, but it leaps off the page in terms of helping us understand multiple applications of it so that you can read beyond what's just there in the simple sense. So where it takes up extra space here to the natural mind, it's wasting words. It's not wasting words at all. It's suggesting to us that because it's prophecy, when we see the repetition, or in this case, plural use, often that will suggest that there will be multiple fulfillments of this particular prophecy. So as we're reading this, we catch this repetition, we catch these plurals, and therefore we tell ourselves, okay, I can go through scripture and possibly through history. Maybe it's not recorded in scripture. Maybe it's just part of history. There's going to be some things that are hinted at or hinted to in the gospels that we can fill in the blanks historically. 
as it concerns the Herodian dynasty and their perfect pattern of being fox and little fox. The Gospels will hint to some of it, but if you don't know historically the context of what the Gospels are hinting at, then you know you, you might lose a grasp on how vividly the Herodians, especially in their pursuit of Yeshua and John the Baptist, fit this prophecy. I mean, this prophecy right here, and, and we'll get into more details next week, but the, the, the details were given right here in 2.15. You could just write the word Herod the Great and Herod Antipas in here and say, yeah, that's one fulfillment. We're, we're going to look at some other fulfillments too. We're going to look at Ahab and Jezebel. We're going to look at Ahab's and uh, Jezebel's son, Ahaziah. We're going to look at Elijah and his interaction with those kings so that we can compare John the Baptist and Yeshua's interaction with the Herods. And that way, the, the fox paradigm will be more clear. And therefore, if there are foxes running around in our generation, hopefully we'll be able to spot them. Because Yeshua knew Herod was a fox. If you'll remember, you don't, you know, you don't really hear Yeshua bad-mouthing people a lot. And if he does, they really deserve it. But remember, you know, when they told Yeshua, like, you know, the Herod's soldiers are looking for you. He's got people looking for you. He says, you tell that fox. I said, <laughs> he calls him just what he is. And for anybody that knows this prophecy, all of a sudden it fell into place for them what Herod's relationship to Yeshua and the John the Baptist was. And they said, oh, okay. Yeah, this is the fox paradigm. So what is created in the prophecy is a guiding principle. In this case, in the Song of Songs, it's giving us a guiding principle that we can look for, for instance, as we do read the story of Ahab and Jezebel and Elijah. Later, we can apply it and say, oh, yes, this applies to the Herods and Herodias and John the Baptist and Yeshua. And then we can say, my generation, let me look around here. Let me see if there's anybody who fits this pattern or any, it might be dual. It might be father and son. It might be husband and wife. Uh, it might be older brother, younger brother. We're going to see several manifestations of this particular prophecy, fox and little fox. But we go back again to the Exodus from Egypt. This tends to be, other than there's like, you know, the proto-prophecy of the interaction in the garden, we can go there too. In fact, we will. We'll go back there too. But in terms of seeing prophecy fulfilled, most often in the Song of Songs, you'll be pointed back to the Exodus from Egypt, because this is where we begin to take our clues. Even if we want to understand an Exodus from Babylon, not just in the Second Temple period, but in the period of Revelation, if we want to understand an Exodus from Babylon, come out from among her, my people. Again, we have to go back to the Exodus and find the pattern, because th these nations are related to one another. So at the time when Israel was a, a young, nascent nation, immature, like a newborn, as the prophets describe her, squirming in her blood. She's a newborn nation. She's a nation being born. And we know that the vineyard, of course, is one metaphor for Israel. We're going to look at another one too. But in Egypt, regardless of the oppression, she was in bloom. The harder she was oppressed, 
the more she bloomed, the more children there were. The more they tried to kill the children, the more children there were. And so the bloom kind of goes back to the, the setting of this Fox prophecy. And we're also going to back up a couple of verses because I want you to see the constant. The constant here is going to be the vineyards in blossom. The concern is about the vineyards. And therefore, it's going to tell us a time of year to keep our eye on. And since we're approaching Passover very fast, before you know it, Purim's going to be upon us. And then Passover, it'll be right there. You know, it, it's, it's, you know, after Purim, it's like, wow, you better have already been uh, planning for Passover because, you know, it, it'll happen very quickly. And so there's things that have to be prepared for. One of those preparations, I think, is we need to check our fruits. Because even though it seems like, well, things just start growing in the spring, Jerusalem is the plumb line. Israel is the measuring line. Everything is measured from Jerusalem. So if we're thinking of seasons, just like you don't think of the holidays where you live over the holidays prescribed by scripture. Anything else needs examination and it's going to be secondary. Everything else has to take a back seat. And then you have to decide, is this competing with the word? Is it setting aside the word? Or is it, you know, just some fruit grown from the word? Like Hanukkah. That's why I wrote the seven shepherds about Hanukkah, because so many people think that's an addition to the word. It's not. It, it has a not just a prophetic basis in the prophet Haggai. It's also, there's also proto-prophecies of Hanukkah in the Torah itself. So you have to do your homework on those things. Uh, but if you define something as, yes, this grew directly out of idolatry, then you have to set that thing aside and say, you know, that's that's not useful. We know an idol's not anything, but once you distinguish it, then you need to separate it out of your life. So coming up into Passover, we have to be thinking about the principles of Passover and our identity as the vineyard. We're going to be a vineyard in bloom. That's the time of year. Passover in Israel is a time of bloom for the vineyard. It's also a time when the figs are ripening, uh, where in our climate, the figs won't ripen until late summer. In Israel, they're going to ripen in early summer. Uh, you're going to see some first ripe figs around the time of Passover, and then you'll start that harvest up until Shavuot. So figs, when we see the symbol of the figs, Again, we know it's a time span typically from Passover to Shavuot. If we see grapes, if we're talking about the blooms, yes, that time too. But if we're talking about mature grapes, we're talking about Shavuot to Sukkot. So the, the agricultural products, again, they help us to know where we are in relation to the feasts and where we should be focusing our concentration spiritually. So the, the blossoms or the blooms of the vineyard are promises of repentance from idolatry. It's a preliminary promise. The fig part of you should be ripening as it pertains to Passover, as it pertains to your salvation, as it pertains to your desire to be saved from death. 
And this is where the salvation of Yeshua comes in so strong. Most people understand that. Not everybody understands what comes after that, which is the maturity of the vineyard. And the scripture teaches both. It teaches you that there is the ripening of the fig of Israel at the time of Passover. It's a preliminary promise of repentance. This is that admission, yes, I'm a sinner, but it, this admission might be made based on sins you don't even know you've done. You might have this vague idea, yes, I'm a sinner. I know I have, have violated some rules. Yes, I know I deserve death because I violated these rules. But there's a lot of Torah. There's a lot of instructions. There's a lot of requirements if we want to live in the garden and be a functioning part of the kingdom. And so we make this preliminary promise. We ask Yeshua into our lives to save us from the realm of death. But then what? Right? So we've got these ripe figs of repentance. Yes, I'm a sinner. Please save me, Yeshua. But then right alongside, we have to look at ourselves as the vineyard and say, okay, at the time of my salvation, I probably didn't know the rest of the instructions. I'm just agreeing that I will learn. I will proceed from this new person that I am. I will continue to grow into mature, into everything he wants me to be at Sukkot. And so we're in a blossoming, we're, we're at one stage, we're at a fixed stage of salvation, but we're at a very immature stage relative to the accepting of the covenant at Shavuot and hearing the rest of the story, hearing the rest of the instructions. And, you know, you're going to have a pretty big realization as we study the word and, and we realize how many things we have violated in error, in ignorance, maybe rebelliously. Maybe we just didn't get it. We didn't realize how rebellious it was. We only had a vague notion this is wrong. But as we read the instructions, that's when we're becoming much more intimate with the word. And then the blossoms begin to glow, grow into clusters of grapes. They glow too. And so finally, by the time you reach Sukkot, you have accepted the covenant upon you. You say, okay, now I understand the instructions. I know how I'm supposed to live. I, I understand what it takes to function in the garden, to be a, a functioning citizen of the kingdom. I accept that and I, I agree to grow in it. So at your salvation stage, there is a confession of repentance, but how can you repent of the things you haven't learned yet? Well, it's a promise that I will, once I understand them, if I am doing these things, then I will repent of them. Or if it's something I should be doing and I didn't know to do it, once I learn what to do, then I will begin to learn how to do it. And I will begin to learn how to apply it. I promise to do that as I receive more information. So that helps us, you know, sometimes we're trying to explain to people who think we've gone back under the law which is kind of interesting because we never were under it if, if we came out of a Christian denomination. That was one thing that was hammered into us. So how could we go back under it? We were never under it. Because they have a fundamental misunderstanding of the fruits of repentance. And if you can just explain the fig and the grape type of repentance, then maybe that'll take some of the fear. See, what they're afraid is somehow, you know, Jesus is going to be really mad at you if you keep more rules than they do. You know, and I'm like, well, you know, even 
If I did keep a few more commandments than the next person, I hardly see how that's, you know, deserving the death sentence. You know, cut me a little slack right there, please. And uh, this explanation just might be something in your toolkit to help them internalize what you're doing. You get it because you're doing it, but it's not always easy to explain to someone else why you're doing what you're doing because you've made the promise of repentance. And this is really the first time you've encountered some of these commandments is something you, wow, I really need to do this or wow, I really need to stop doing that. And so you are turning from a blossom into a grape. And for those who are still in a fig stage, they're wondering what the grapes are up to here. You were a pretty little flower, you know, and now I don't know what you are. But if you can explain to them what's happening to you, then I I think maybe that'll help them understand you're not questioning their salvation. You're, You're not questioning the fact at all that they are a summer fruit. They are a fig. But maybe they don't understand the promise of repentance they made when they became a fig. Because remember the, the prophecy I left you with last week talked about the vision of the summer fruits. You know, it's there's a judgment coming at different stages of fruithood. <laughs> and, and we need to expect those things in prophecy so that we're not caught off guard, so that we're not caught just being happy being a, a mature fig, when actually he expected us to be, you know, in a cluster of grapes jumping in the basket when he starts marching from Botsra with his garments tied in blood. That's that's what I'm talking about in terms of we have to keep maturing in our repentance. You never thought, you know, repentance requires increasing maturity. Okay. So let's review the, the fox just for a second here. We know that the big fox was Pharaoh and his fox-like characteristic, not like a beast nation who wants to go out and conquer big territory. Instead, he wants to control what's his. Pharaoh really doesn't need to go out and conquer a lot because he has the most fertile, wonderful territory of the ancient world. It's the Nile. It's going to flood once a year. It's going to bring plenty of crops. It's a great place situated for trade. There's really nothing that Egypt is going to lack that can't at least be accomplished easily through trade. But if you have the best spot, then what do you want to do? You want to keep it. That's what Pharaoh wants to do. He's the fox. So he's got all these Hebrews within his nation. And because of their reputation for being very strong warriors, like Shimon and Levi, like Abraham, uh, he's afraid they'll turn on him. If a foreign army invades, he thinks, well, maybe they'll, you know, throw in with that foreign army and we'll lose, we'll not only lose this free labor, we'll lose our place. That's what the fox is concerned about. The fox has a burrow. He has a, an established domain. He doesn't want to lose that established domain. He wants to protect territory way more than he wants to conquer it. And it's also during this period, Jewish tradition tells us that Pharaoh's astrologers predicted that a deliverer would be born among these Hebrews who would arise and defeat him. That story should sound familiar because it applies to another fox in history, Herod the Great. So you're going to be able to, once you learn this paradigm, you're going to be able to spot it. 
And uh, who were the little foxes? We know who the big fox was. We know who Pharaoh was. And we know that he decided to be cunning like a fox in order to deal with the Hebrews. Uh, He doesn't go to war with them. He puts them to work. He starts killing the baby boys to get rid of this deliverer that would allow them to, to, you know, break out of his control uh, and who might be instrumental in causing him to lose his hold over his territory. Now, some sages say the little foxes were Egyptian school children, these little kids. And back then, people went to bathhouses to bathe. Not everybody had, you know, a beautiful tiled shower and tub in their house. It was more like a community bathhouse for men and then one for women, or they would have different days of the week for men or women, but they would spin the little kids into the bathhouses to spy on the Hebrew women when they went to bathe. And then they would go and report back to the officers, which ones were pregnant. And then they could record approximately how pregnant uh, the woman was and know the approximate time to seize the newborns from the birthing stool or, or later to take them to the Nile. And so here's a paradigm. When a nation is under surveillance, listen for the footsteps. You know Messiah is coming when, especially the Hebrews, when people of faith, when children of Abraham are under surveillance because of their reproduction. What do I mean reproduction? They're bearing fruit. And in this case, the literal fruit, of course, is little children. But again, what are the fruits that we can bear? We can also bear fruits of repentance. And so you can have more than one idea grow out of a seed. And I I think if we look at our nation, particularly right now, we are definitely under surveillance. Computers, data is being collected by the second. It's being accumulated. It's being shared. It's being linked. It's, you know, and I'm not making fun of you. If you put a little thing over your, your camera on your laptop, not a bad idea, but gee whiz, we're giving them all the information they need, right? With every keystroke, you're reporting to someone either wittingly or unwittingly. I hope it's not unwittingly. Every keystroke is being recorded and shared and linked and stored primarily for commerce. But there might be an ulterior motive. Keep that in mind as you use your keystrokes. We want to use these keystrokes for good things. We want that recorded because if, you know, if ever there is a consequence to being under surveillance, then we want whatever that consequence is to be for something we've done for the kingdom. In that case, we say, we have to be like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Say, whatever you got to do, king. I know you got your little informant standing around here, checking to see who's going to bow to your idol. Apparently, they've come back and reported to you. And if you want to kill us, then you're going to kill us for something good, right? If we're coming under judgment, we're going to come under judgment for doing what is right. Let your little clandestine informants run around and spy on people all they want to. But the Holy One will only allow to be seen what he wants to be seen. And if there is something he does not want to be seen, then he will conceal it, distort it, destroy it. He can do whatever he wants to with it. It's not our concern. Again, the little foxes, the big foxes, who are they? 
some of the sages point to Edom as a fox, and particularly the little fox, because in Obadiah 1-2, he prophesies that Edom will become little among the nations, or Catan. Okay, Catan is how the, the little foxes are described. So as they're kind of tracing back these prophecies of Obadiah, who, by the way, just it's something important to know, Obadiah prophesied during the time of Ahab and Jezebel. He prophesied during the time of Elijah. And what's significant about Obadiah, we may not get to it till next week, but what is significant about him is that he would hide the prophets, the good prophets, the real prophets, not the 400 prophets of Baal, the fake prophets. He, he hid them in caves in 50s. And so maybe next week as we get to Elijah and how he calls down fire, on the captains of 50 who come up to arrest him, there's going to be something there I think we need to kind of take note of. Because again, we're looking at Ahab and Jezebel as a pattern of the fox and the little fox. But before we get there, let's go back to Edom. Why does Obadiah prophesy that Edom is going to be Catan or little, which the, the sages are associating with the little fox? They're going back to the text in Genesis 27.1. It's well, you can also look at uh, Genesis 27 15 because you're looking at the two brothers, Jacob and Esau. And so they point out that both Isaac and Rivka had Esau categorized as great or large, Gadol. And they, they say that he must have had a very commanding presence even before his parents. You know, we know Esau's troubles, but apparently Esau was no slouch. He had a very intimidating presence. And so in the, the text, it says, Isaac summoned Esau, his great son, or in Hebrew, that's Gadol. And then it says, Rebekah took the garments of her great son, Esau, Gadol. So they see Esau as the, the fox, the Gadol son. And then Obadiah says, well, you're, your nature is going to change. Even though you might be Gadol, Edom, the time is coming when you are going to be Catan. You're going to be little. You're going to go from big to little. And they point out that in the long run, even though Edom, has, he was conquered by David, he was weak up until after the era of the Hasmoneans, Second Temple era. Nevertheless, you can't get rid of him. He keeps hanging around. And it's understood that Edom actually was transplanted the vision of Edom was transplanted and became Rome. And so by the time of Yeshua's generation, Edom was not just seen as the Edomians who lived south of them. It was also seen as being the empire of Rome, the beast kingdom, the iron legs of the beast, Rome. And this is what they say about Edom, that ultimately Edom is so strong that he has to be slaughtered by the Holy One himself, which is prophesied in Isaiah 34, 6, where it says, Adonai is making a sacrifice at Botsra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. So there is some vestige, not just of the, the ancient Edom, but some vestige apparently of Rome, as we see in the mixed iron and clay feet of the beast. Rome is still present among us today. Most of our great systems today, medicine, government, architecture, these reflect Rome. Even the language of medicine, by the way, is Latin. It's, it comes from Rome. 
Rome acquired from Greece, Greece acquired from the Persians and the Medes, the Persians and the Medes acquired from Babylon. So it's, it's, it's changed a little, it's transformed a little, but it's the same beast. And so Edom actually became part of this beast, part of the iron legs. And then eventually when the, the kingdoms busted up, the iron systems are still present among the nations of the earth. At any rate, our candidates for the fox and the little fox, based on this paradigm, can be a family fox. Obviously, Pharaoh was not a family fox, even though scripture points out, don't oppress an Egyptian because he is your brother. That There was a period of time where the Egyptians gave you shelter, so don't oppress an Egyptian, and he can enter into the congregation at this particular generation. So, you know, in a sense, he was a family fox, but not really. In this particular instance, we have more of a family fox because we have the relationship used between Esau and Jacob, Edom being a fox, and then eventually his kingdom being a little fox, because as the kingdom is broken down, he will become little among the nations. Uh, but again, the reason this is so interesting is because it's Obadiah making this prophecy in the generation of Ahab. And he is the one who is connecting this little with Edom. He's helping us make the connection between Edom, which later they will be known in the New Testament as Edomians. The Herodian dynasty, they were Edomians. So Obadiah prophesied this long before it happened. So again, let's, let's look at our passages here. Uh, we know that the rotten figs, going back in our lessons, they have to be destroyed through altar judgments. Okay, again, springtime, Passover, the figs need to start to be ripened. And here's the thing about a fig. If you look at a fig, Yeshua goes by and curses a fig tree because it doesn't have figs on it. It says it wasn't the time for figs. And everybody gets upset, like, why did he curse the fig tree? It didn't do anything wrong. It says it wasn't the time for figs. Well, look very carefully at that picture. You know when the leaves first sprout, whether that fig tree will have fruit, because the little fruit buds grow at the exact same time as the leaves. You don't have to wait till the time for fruit. You can look at the leaves and say, if there's leaves on this tree, then I should be seeing fruit buds. Should there be no fruit buds, I know it's not going to produce. And so at the same time, the leaf come, it's like a very preliminary, it's a very early evidence of repentance. It's not like the leaves come out and then later you see the fruits of repentance. No, the fruits of repentance come out with leaves, which is a great picture of our salvation. Before you ever really even understand, you repent and say, I need salvation, Yeshua, I'm going to die you know, and I'm going to be separated from you forever. Please save me. I can't save myself. And this is the picture of the, the fig tree. But these figs, they continue to ripen up until about the time of Shavuot. They'll continue to be harvested. But what if they're rotten? What if these figs are no good? Then they're destroyed. We covered that before in the book of Revelation. It talks about the stars, which represent children of Abraham falling like unripe figs. They're, they're just not fit 
for harvest by Shavuot. So there might be some people who would show some promise at salvation. But again, that's that vulnerable time. If we look at it relative to the time of the vineyard, because the, the vulnerability of the vineyard blossoms between Passover and Shavuot. So apparently there's also some figs who have budded out, but they just drop off before they ever ripen. So they showed the promise of repentance. They just never came to a full fruit of repentance. So our, our verse here in Song of Songs 2.13 says, the fig tree has ripened its fruit and the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, and come along. This is thought to represent Passover. That we've got these initial figs of repentance. They're going to keep uh, growing until Shavuot, and then they'll be harvested there at Shavuot. They will be that basket of summer fruit at Shavuot, and they at Shavuot or at Mount Sinai, they will then have the full ability to say, We will do and we will hear as they stand and the covenant is offered to them. So he says, Arise, my darling, my beautiful one, come along. It's time to leave Egypt. You're a fig tree ripening its fruit. Let's get out of here. Right? And the vines in blossom have given forth their fragrance. Again, this is the long-term promise. I haven't heard everything. I won't hear everything until we reach Mount Sinai. Until we get in the wilderness, I won't hear everything. But I promise I will continue. There, there's promise in the blossom. And then it brings in the voice of the turtle dove that is thought to represent King Messiah. This is the blossoms have already appeared in the land. The time has arrived for pruning the vines, and the voice of the turtle dove has been heard in our land, right? This goes back to the footsteps of Messiah. When you can hear his footsteps on the mountains announcing good news, and this is good news, by the way. Salvation is good news. Shavuot is also good news. Sukkot is also good news. Uh, remember, it says in uh, Nahum, it says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Keep your feasts. Oh, Judah, the feasts are these time markers for the good news. And so in the spring, you hear the voice of the turtle dove. You hear the voice of King Messiah. Uh, this is like his footsteps at the time of salvation. But we can see here from the text, it says it's time for pruning these vines. You might see blossoms, but this is when we're going to prune them back. He's going to decide which direction he wants them to grow. And often we have ideas about which way we should grow. And the Holy Spirit comes along and says, nope, not that way. Not like that. And we might get pruned back. And at any rate, this is a vulnerable time because it is a time of pruning. There's a painful aspect to this particular time of salvation, of Passover moving forward. There's going to be some changes that need to be made because of this promise of the blossom because of this uh, ripening of the fig that still needs to occur. Uh, so in the footsteps of Messiah, if we're listening for those footsteps, who do we want to look out for? Well, our, our known enemy is the fox, and we know exactly what he's looking for. He's seeking the new blossoms in the vineyard Israel. He's going to be a threat 
to the young bride of Messiah. Um, what does it say? Uh, Woe to those who are nursing in that day. It's not going to be a great day to be young. It's not going to be a great day to be dragging along the young, uh, especially if they're young who just refuse to grow up. You know, if, if we're a nation of Peter Pans, then it's not going to be so easy in the wilderness. Uh, because what do children do? Exactly what the children of Israel did in the wilderness. They complain, they complain, they complain, they complain. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. He's touching me. Are we there yet? We just do a grown-up version of that. And so these are the things that we need to watch out for because these are the things that will make us vulnerable. We're being pruned. And the more we feel ourselves complaining, the more you could just go ahead and tell yourself, you know what, somebody just pruned me. The Holy Spirit is pruning me. Um, how do I navigate through this situation, this problem, this trouble without being a complainer? That's something I have to ask myself all the time. Uh, you know, especially if people around you are being babies and then your reaction is to be a baby about it yourself to be a complainer, you know, we got complainers complaining about complainers. And he's saying, no, I'm, I'm pruning you. Uh, you're immature right now, but I'm trying to bring you to ripeness. Uh, so we have to be careful. We're vulnerable when we're immature in an area. And this is where the fox will strike, in an area where we are still spiritually immature. Uh, and it might be that we're emotionally immature. Uh, it's time to grow up. He's saying, if you're going to leave Egypt with the group, then it's time to grow up. You're releasing a fragrance of repentance, but it doesn't seem like you're really grasping the fullness of it yet. That's going to occur seven weeks later at Mount Sinai. So, once you accept, once you get that face-to-face -face covenant and you accept it, seven weeks after Passover, that says, okay, the figs are in, the summer fruit's in. Now what? He says, well, you still got a ways to go because Mount Sinai is in a wilderness. Sukkot, their destination is going to be in a land of promise. And so you got to finish ripening these clusters of grapes. These blossoms have grown into clusters. And now I need to see you bring forth the fruits proper for repentance. And you'll find that in Matthew 3, 8 and Acts 26, 20. You need to keep ripening these clusters of grapes according to repentance as you walk. Every day as you walk, you're going to find some way to repent, to do something you weren't doing or to quit doing something you shouldn't have been doing. And this is why it's such a dangerous time for a person who has only casual knowledge of the word. Like I say, we often are saved based on just a limited understanding of what is required in order to escape eternal death and separation. But we don't, it doesn't mean we understand 613 commandments. That's still ahead of us. Now, not all of those apply to us as an individual, 
But there is way more that leads to maturity as a believer. And so for a person who has only a casual knowledge of the word that led him to his salvation, he's got a lot of ripening to do. And this is hopefully, you know, it's ideally we would all be saved when we were young and spend the rest of our lives ripening. Well, what if there's tribulation and people who don't know anything about the word come to salvation, they come to repentance, and they got to grow up fast. And that's why Yeshua says, you know, whoa, if you're nursing children in those days, because they're going to have to grow up really fast. I think the good news is if they want to, they can. Uh, miracles do occur in the wilderness. And if we want to grow up, uh, and get over ourselves, which is what life's all about. Life's just all about getting over yourself, right? If you're ready to get over yourself and you're ready to walk with Yeshua, then I think there's a path, but it's a very narrow path. And you have to watch where you're walking as you ripen. So let's let's kind of go on here. What about idolatry? Because if you think about idolatry, as it was revealed to them in the wilderness, they knew what idolatry was. They had fallen to a horrible level of idolatry in Egypt, according to Ezekiel 20. But they repented enough to be saved. They repented enough to get that blood on their doorpost. But there was something about idolatry they didn't understand because they turned right around at Mount Sinai, even after coming out of Egypt, even after having received the Ten Commandments, right up there at the top, <laughs> I am the Lord your God. I'm the only one. Don't worship other gods. And what do they do? They do it. They do idolatry. So obviously, they had a preliminary repentance from idolatry, but it wasn't ripe. It was still immature. And then the fox cut them down at their most vulnerable. And so as we're looking, even at the Big Ten, how much of the Big Ten, if we really think about the essence of it, it's really idolatry. What is adultery? Idolatry. What is stealing from people? Idolatry. What is coveting? Idolatry. It's, it's worshiping yourself. It's setting your own interests above everyone else. It is a form of idolatry. So idolatry is way more than just seeing a Buddha statue in a restaurant. Idolatry and sorcery, they are mentioned from Genesis to Revelation. It never goes away in the Bible. It's always a concern, even among believers, even among believers, even among believers. That's how the menorah is going to factor into this conversation. Idolatry is, is an egregious sin because it runs counter to the greatest commandment that everything else hangs on, which is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. He is one. He is only one. And you're not him. <laughs> That's just my little asterisk to the Shema. You're not him. And you don't get to set your own rules. So if the greatest commandment is that the Father is one, then throughout generations, there will always be a clear and present danger 
of making more than one God. And even though you might see people bowing down to idols and so forth, it's always going back to, I'm bowing to the idol that I think will give me what I want. Therefore, you've made yourself the idol. One thing that's pretty constant in scripture, though, is that spiritual adultery is also measured frequently by sexual immorality. And we're going to look exactly how that's that's portrayed, because, again, that's where the menorah comes into our conversation today. But how can we move past this? How can we move past this very immature, mental ascent saying, yes, I need salvation. Yes, Adonai is the only one. He is the only God. I will worship him alone and him alone will I serve. But how do we do that every day? If scripture is telling me I'm fighting idolatry still as a believer, how is idolatry prevailing in the earth today? Because it is present even among believers today. Where is it? Where can we find it? And how do we know it's present among believers? Well, Revelation 1.20 says, as for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And, you know, in another place, it talks about, these are the seven spirits of Adonai. These are the seven spirits before the throne. So we've got this menorah back here in Teruma. And that's when we realize it's going to represent more than one thing, but primarily it's going to represent the seven spirits of Adonai. In what respect does it represent these seven assemblies in Revelation 120? If the seven spirits, if the Holy Spirit is in the body of Messiah, then yes, they represent the menorah and the menorah represents them. So as we're looking at the addresses to the seven assemblies of Revelation, we have to understand that if they are full of the Holy Spirit, they also are the menorah. And if he's threatened to break off their lampstand, then it's because they're not operating in the spirit. They are acting out of character with what that menorah represents, which is the seven spirits. But it's also them. It's just like the spirit and the bride say, come. Is it the spirit or the bride? Yes, the spirit's in the bride. So she says, come, right? Spirit's in her. She's going to say, come. This is how two things can be one thing or three things can be one thing in this particular case. So just want to show you this graphic to remind you again, another application of the seven branch menorah, how it represents the seven feasts of Adonai. Again, it goes back to the good news. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Well, if these are the footsteps of Messiah, then we can expect the good news of the feasts should be blossoming and ripening like they never have before, perhaps since the book of Acts. Right? Would you agree with me that the good news of the feasts is blossoming and ripening in this generation like no other since the book of Acts? If so, then it's possible we're hearing footsteps. And again, it is the, the feasts, these are the vehicle. This, these are the appointed times for us to move in 
in order to come to maturity and to avoid the very idolatry that can still be present among believers. How do we know idolatry can still be present? Let's go on to Revelation 2.20. Now, this is going to be the fourth assembly, Thyatira, that is addressed. Now, she's doing some good things. I'm not going to read that just for the sake of time. I want to skip to what she's doing wrong. These are believers who were doing some things right. They have a faith in Yeshua, and we know this because he's threatening to break off their lampstand. Okay, If you're never with him, there's nothing to break off. If the spirit was never in you, there's nothing to break off. But there's something to break off because these people are believers, yet he says, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality and eat things, sacrifice to idols. All right, that's worth remembering. If idolatry can exist among believers today, how do I look for it? I mean, I don't... I doubt they're going to be worshiping a Buddha statue or anything like that. How do I look for it among believers today? Well, she says she's teaching and leading my bondservants astray so that they commit sexual immorality. He's saying sexual immorality is going to be rampant among believers in the time of the footsteps. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.